Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Uh, hey everybody, uh, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Olaf Sackers and Prescott Watson of Maneve Mobility. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Good to be here. So, uh, Olaf, why don't we start with you? Uh, you started Maneve with a, with another partner in Israel. Why don't you give a little bit of a historical background of Maneve, uh, its focus, um, and then we can get into to Prescott and, and talk about how, how it's evolved over time. Yeah, so um, I was living in Israel. I was in the IDF, um, and I started looking into autonomous vehicles, written a paper, met Mike, um, who was an early investor in Better Place, um, and uh, basically had this idea that you know Israel could become a key center for development and innovation um, around the theme of autonomous vehicles. Um, so we started meeting these companies um, that were being founded by kind of tech veterans, people who'd started a few other companies, say a data marketplace or a cybersecurity company. Um, and they were doing things that were now becoming relevant to automotive. Um, what they didn't have was connections into the automotive industry and a way to basically bridge across that gap. So we started kind of instinctively helping them to reach their customers. Mike, from his background at Better Place, had a pretty strong network there. Um, and then over time, as we helped more companies, more companies came to us and then it became kind of a virtuous cycle that we were making these effectively angel investments uh, into companies, building out a portfolio in the mobility space. Um, and as that portfolio grew, um, you know, we kind of developed a reputation uh, and, and raised our first fund on the back of that. Um, and now uh, in July, we closed our second fund, which was $100 million. Uh, USD fund um, with a lot of backing from strategics like major car makers, uh, suppliers, uh, oil and gas companies like Shell. Um, so uh, that's been kind of the evolution of the time uh, with the, the core idea kind of at the center of it that we don't just give capital to uh, our companies, we help them reach across the industry. And because we're so focused on mobility, uh, we're able to add, I think, pretty unique value and see repeating patterns, uh, get what we like to call economies of scope. Um, from focusing on the on the sector and and having relationships across it. Cool. And Prescott, uh, what's your story here, and and where are you most excited? So I ended up moving to Israel in 2012. Um, the reason I moved to Israel most directly is I had an opportunity to work with an entrepreneur that was starting a company. Um, I'm an American, no connection to Israel. So a lot of people ask like, why Israel? Um, Hindsight's 2020, so it's always easy to, easy to kind of paint a story of why you end up in a certain place. But if you were to just kind of close your eyes and throw a dart at the you know dart at the earth and, and ask you know where what tech ecosystem you're going to end up in if you want to work for a startup uh, surprisingly Israel is actually a pretty uh, pretty notable ecosystem it's not actually that surprising if you want to move somewhere to work in tech that you end up there um, so I moved out in 2012 right after college to, to go work at an early stage startup and I was there for about five years uh, during which time I got to see a lot of the trends that were happening there and I think when people ask like what's going on in Israel, there's always numbers you can talk about, like IPOs, capital raising, M&A, that kind of stuff. But I actually think talking about it in terms of products is more interesting. Some of the stuff that I was really amazed to kind of learn when I moved there is how many of the products we use are from American companies, but really developed by Israelis or developed in Israel. So, you know, when people ask about what's going on there, I point to companies like Intel, for example. I think people are always surprised to know that there are certain years in the past decade where it's like half of Intel's global revenues 
came from products that were made in Israel. Or if you look at like Apple, for example, the acquisitions they made in the past few years power a lot of the, the flash memory in their, in their computers or in their phones, power the products like Face ID and other things of the sort. So it's actually, uh, if you're just going to go somewhere and work in tech, Israel's actually surprisingly a close second to Silicon Valley. Totally. Now, what is the Meneev Mobility uh, investment thesis today? Where are you guys focused? Where are you guys interested? I'm, I'm curious to dig in where, what today is interested in mobility space and, and maybe in contrast to how that's changed in the last you know five years or so. Yeah, so often the first question we get asked is like, what is mobility? Um, and uh, I, our quick definition is things that move people and goods. Um, and I think the definition initially when people meet us, are like you're a VC that focuses just on mobility, that's so narrow. And then when you kind of describe this, then they kind of have the opposite reaction. It's like, how do you focus within like all that stuff that's happening? Um, because there's a lot of technologies that have been developed um, over the last few years that are relevant to the space, whether it's connected technologies enabling data to be shared between vehicles or sold or cybersecurity that protects vehicles, um, changes that are happening to the powertrain of vehicles like electrification. Everybody knows Tesla, obviously, but that's a huge shift happening in the industry. Um, obviously, autonomous vehicles. But I think what we're finding now is that there's a really interesting shift around the business models. I mean, it's continuing to happen. Uh, like the most valuable startups of the last decade have been companies in, in the ride hailing space um, and, and companies like Uber and Lyft and Didi um, and also now scooter sharing companies. So you're seeing this opportunity to change how people get around and what kinds of vehicles they use to get around. Um, and so one of, one of I, mean, I think what's nice about being focused is that we're able to come up with pretty deep ideas about how um, all these things fit together. Uh, we're kind of thesis driven. Um, so one of these ideas is around um, like a trip economy that once you start buying a trip on Uber, it's not so crazy to also buy a trip on a, a shared scooter or to buy a food uh, delivery trip that's basically brought to you. Um, and the car historically has been this bundle where you spend, you know, thousands of dollars every five or so years uh, buying a new car. Um, and that car is like a decathlete. It's kind of good at everything, but not great at anything. And as a result, you kind of have something that on average does all the things you need it to do. But when you start buying trips, you start using the vehicle that's optimized for whatever you're doing at a given moment. Um, so micromobility is popular because cities right now are super congested and um, sitting in a car is not so fun and you can get on a scooter and you can get there faster and you'll get some kind of fresh air in your face. Uh, along the way or food delivery kind of saves you time. So what we're seeing is this fragmentation of um, of trips um, that historically have all been bundled into the car um, and then specialization of different vehicle platforms uh, for each of those trips. So that's one thing that we're really excited about right now. And we're seeing it play out in different ways uh, in developed uh, uh, economies and countries um, and then in emerging markets. What are examples of investable companies that emerge from that thesis? So we've got a company that uh, kind of leveraged uh, the shift in, in food delivery, which is which is quite interesting. Um, actually, there's some PR around the round today uh, called Bolt Bikes. Um, and, and what this company does is it leases um, electric bicycles to food couriers. Um, so uh, I noticed when I was riding around in Paris on a jump bicycle, which is like a, a pedal assist bicycle, that I was riding kind of faster than a lot of the couriers. And these, these couriers are spending their entire day riding around the city, making money, um, but they don't have the optimized vehicle for it. Um, and so 
part of the challenge is they don't have access to credit or they don't have the means to upfront the cost of an electric bicycle, even though that would be the optimal vehicle for them to use. Um, so what Bolt is doing is giving them um, a lease, uh, kind of a week-to-week -week lease that allows them access to a vehicle, but also to the things that they need in order to keep that vehicle in service, um, so maintenance and things like that. Um, so that's that's something that's leveraging the shift towards food delivery. It's a very specialized platform, um, and it's and it's optimized for that particular task. And it's actually solving a key problem for the for the couriers themselves by allowing them to be more productive. I think another company that exemplifies like where the trip economy creates opportunities would be a company called Revel Transit. Uh, Revel's a moped sharing company based in New York. They've launched in Texas. They've launched in D.C. They're growing very uh, very rapidly throughout the U.S. Uh, when we first started meeting with uh, Frank and Paul, the founders of Revel, back in 2018, a lot of questions that we would get from other people were like, mopeds aren't popular in the U.S. Why would mopeds take off? Culturally, compared to Europe, Americans aren't that interested in mopeds. And the trip economy has changed that because it's not actually that Americans are just uninterested in mopeds. They're uninterested in mopeds when the proposition is that I have to buy a moped. If I can just experiment with a trip, I can quickly discover that actually it's a really fun and fast way to get around. And so by shifting the, by lowering the barriers to buying something, you actually increase the rate at which you can get experimental vehicles out there and people can discover that they really enjoy one way or another. So you're actually able to increase the consumer adoption curve. What's your sort of request for startups or request for innovation? Like what, what do you want to see people build in the trip economy? Um, I think we just like we see you know a specific opportunity around e-bikes for delivery or a specific opportunity for mopeds at a moment when i think a lot of investors were very negative on it because scooters were blowing up um, we think there's all sorts of different things in kind of the historic bundle of all the things that a car can do that are now becoming unbundled um, and you know if you think about transportation like how much you know, each individual spends on transportation. It's the second biggest spending category after like buying their home. Um, and so there's a huge uh, pool of, of capital and an and opportunity around transforming transportation, right? Like it's in the trillions of dollars. So each of these bundles as the car kind of becomes unbundled and you have a special uh, better built service for one particular need or another is still a massive, massive uh, opportunity from, from a VC perspective. Um, so things like logistics are super interesting and, you know, it's a sector that really hasn't been disrupted that much. Um, all sorts of different modes of getting around cities or getting things around cities, uh, B2B delivery of goods, um, you know, the package deliveries, uh, urban logistics. There's there's a lot around there. Intercity, um, uh, you know, new new platforms for people getting where they want to, want to get to. And then also connected to that is the real estate um, that's affected by transportation. So we see opportunities around, you know, road pricing and 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 co-pricing and things like that, uh, which are assets that have historically not been priced um, and have been used inefficiently. Um, but there's huge opportunities there too. Also, when you think about the trip economy, I think that we forget how many trips in the car. And Olaf, you've written a lot about this. How many trips in the car are done with pricing that's not completely transparent? Like I don't think about. Um, I don't think about how much parking costs when it's free to me, or I don't think about how much the government has spent building roadways, or you know, in some very, if you really take this to its to its you know natural extreme, how much the government has spent securing access to liquid fuels, you know, in the Middle East, so on and so forth. 
Um, when you actually start looking at all the subsidies that have gone to transportation, I think one of the cool opportunities is to find companies or to convince founders to start companies that help us take some of the money we're putting into parking or subsidies to fuel and, and actually bring those subsidies to other forms of transit. Like why, if I don't drive to work, should I not receive the same parking subsidy as somebody that does drive to work, even if I'm making a, you know, a societally better choice, like riding a bike or taking a scooter that takes up less room, has less emissions, so on and so forth. Yeah, and I, th- I think you're seeing these subtle kind of biases play out where in some cities, um, scooters are being charged a fee in order to use you know, access to the city. But these will be vehicles that are much smaller, much more efficient, don't do much wear and tear on the roads. And then you know, car owners aren't charged any of those fees and will be irate if they're charged anything. Um, and part of the cool thing about our work, I think partly why we find it so motivating and exciting is, I mean, the two examples we listed with Revel and, and with Bolt Bikes, these are technologies that actually transform people's lives. These couriers are able to kind of make more money and, and, and do much better uh, because they have access to a better vehicle. Um, and, and in Revel's case, you know, getting around Brooklyn is really expensive if you're going between Queens and, and, and Brooklyn, right? Um, there isn't really public transit that serves that. If you want to take an Uber, it costs three times as much um, as what a Revel costs. And so we're seeing this kind of this equity uh, component to it that it's a much more uh, efficient and better and equitable form of transportation once you start solving these problems. Uh, when people talk about the big trends in, in automotive uh, or in, in, in mobility, uh, they talk about connected, shared, electric, and autonomous. Uh, you have some thoughts as, on electric as it relates to autonomous as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think electrification is the trend that is, uh, I mean, all of the, like, autonomy was was hyped and now we're in the, like, you know, uh, trough of disillusionment. I think electrification is the one that, that, that kind of got hyped uh, in the mid to, to late 2000s. Um, and now in kind of the, the productivity phase where you're seeing massive investment and massive rollout, or at least uh, the initial stages of that happening. Uh, not only with Tesla, which is, I think, kind of the story stock that everybody gets excited about, but what VW is doing, um, I mean, investing tens of, of billions of dollars into building out uh, a whole line of, of, of vehicles on the new what's called MEB uh, electric platform. Um, there's just massive investment that's gone into electrification um, being pushed largely by regulation, uh, especially in, in Europe and in China. Um, and really transforming the entire uh, value chain of vehicles. Um, so if you think about a car and an internal combustion uh, engine, there are many, many different components and pieces that have to be put together. Um, and uh, the cost of servicing and, and maintaining that vehicle is quite high. Um, and comparing that to an electric vehicle, they're way, way fewer, like a third as many components uh, that go into that vehicle. Um, but the battery is really important and so is the motor. Um, and so you're also seeing a restructuring of the supply chain in automotive, which is also very complicated with lots of different suppliers uh, creating different components of, of those vehicles and different suppliers now having to adapt to the shift that's happening. Um, one of, I think, the uh, kind of unexpected consequences of the CO2 regulations that are being pushed in Europe right now um, is that a lot of the value chain of European suppliers, which are historically quite dominant, a lot of the, for instance, big German players like bon- Conti and Bosch, um, are, are some of that value chain is being shifted uh, to Asia, where most of the key uh, providers of, of, uh, fuel, of battery cells and, and the battery supply chain um, is, is kind of being developed out, uh, countries like Korea and China and Japan. 
Um, and so I think there's this unintended consequence that's happening. And a lot of European comic is actually quite upset about this. Um, and, and, and you see it happening that um, a lot of the value is being uh, transferred over to uh, uh, Asian suppliers because the cost of the battery and, and, and that aspect of the vehicle is about 40% of the overall cost. So 40% of the total cost of vehicles is being shifted east. I think it's not just uh, the shift that European car makers have to be upset about. Anyone that sells a car in Europe, well, taking a step back, why are so many people developing batteries and developing electric vehicles? I think in Silicon Valley, we, you know, every VC drives a Tesla and they're like, oh, naturally, it's a better car. Everyone wants it. But in reality, it's that's not really the case. Like Consumers aren't demanding electric vehicles. Sure, they'll say, I prefer an electric car, but when it comes down to it, it's way cheaper to buy um, an entry-level, you know, internal combustion engine sedan than it is to buy a Model 3. And especially if you don't consider the government subsidies, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of consumers. So the push is actually not coming from consumers wanting these vehicles. It's really coming from the CO2 regulations, which you referenced a minute ago. And just to give people some some perspective, like this is a huge deal in the auto industry that I don't think the tech industry even is aware of. As soon as 2021, car companies selling cars in Europe could be facing fines of like 30 or $40 billion a year. You know, Dieselgate from Volkswagen, that was like, what, 18 billion euros, I think? $30 billion, it's, it's an incredible amount of money. And so they're under in, enormous government pressure, not pressure because Tesla's getting consumers to buy electric cars. They're under a lot of government pressure to develop EVs. So I think because of this, the, the development time cycles have been compressed. People are having to invest a lot of money and it may end up being that the European suppliers uh, could lose some, some value to... Uh, to East Asia and the companies that come out there, for, especially for the battery development side. So we were just talking about sort of regulation in different environments. How do you, that, that's one element of sort of um, thinking about investing in different cities because you guys invest, invest globally. What, what are the other elements that are important to think about uh, when sort of analyzing which sort of geos are better for which kinds of, of opportunities? I mean, the weird thing about cities is they're often more connected than a few miles into the countryside, both culturally, but also sometimes in travel time. Like you could go from a city and it will take you a few hours to drive into the countryside and you can get to another city by flying in, in just a few hours. Then I think also some cities are quite similar structurally to others, uh, even if they're on different continents. So a big shift that's happening in transportation um, is that firstly, there's, there's massive urbanization, especially in Asia. Um, but even in the U.S., there's, there's trends of, of urbanization. So more and more people are living in cities. Part of the reason people want to live in cities is because cities have historically been growth engines and continue to be. Um, because by bringing people closer together, there's more opportunities to, uh, to, to basically offer goods and services, to produce things. Um, and so there are these kind of network effects that are built into cities. Um, and transportation is the glue that sticks all of that together. Um, so Prescott and I actually spent a few weeks traveling in South America, um, meeting with a lot of the investors there, meeting with startups, um, and trying to understand what was shifting uh, in that market. And what we noticed were cities like Bogota, Mexico City, and Sao Paulo were structurally quite similar in that they, weren't, they didn't have strong public transit backbones, and they were kind of big, kind of geographic, geographic low-rise uh, blobs almost, which weren't very well connected. It was like these concentric circles of connectivity. There was obviously benefits to living close to other people. But kind of something interesting about New York is if you go on the subway, you can get kind of within an hour of any kind of specialist. If you need a specialist doctor or specialist lawyer, you got this kind of powerful network effect. 
And in these countries which uh, kind of don't have such good transit, you don't get those benefits. And so the cities aren't, aren't as efficient in kind of creating wealth uh, and growth. Um, so, I mean, that's one lens I think we look through cities that different cities are structured differently right. and therefore have different kinds of challenges and different kinds of problems. Um, and a so solution like Revel, which is kind of one lens we look at it through, or maybe Bolt, might work really, really well in some cities and not well at all in other cities. And so the kind of taxonomy of figuring out, you know, what is investable and what's interesting really depends on understanding the kind of range of different cities, yeah. the opportunities and the problems that need to be solved. And again, I think what's exciting about this is if you solve these problems, you also solve major economic growth uh, problems because transportation is so linked to growth. Yeah, if you ask questions like what's the purpose or why did urbanity come about, it's many people will say it's an economic effect. Um, the advantages to large labor markets so that you get tons of labor specialization, so on and so forth. But as long as you know you don't exist in a world where you can work in VR perfectly with one another, there are huge advantages to having people that are within one or two hours commute time. And that's kind of, you know, after two hours, people really won't commute every day into a job. So when you have these gigantic cities like Sao Paulo, you'd think just by the numbers, wow, this is a really large labor market. The city could actually become quite, you know, internationally significant, which it has. But if you can't get from one side of the city to the other in a reasonable workday, then a lot of the benefits are lost. So improving the way that people can move around in urban centers is really important, which is why it's kind of a pity that there's been such an underinvestment in public transit infrastructure. If you look at, I think from the perspective of America, it's quite strange to look at other countries because America is such a spacious country. Um, and there's been uh, a lot of cost centricity in the way things have rolled out. But in Asia, there's way less space and also in, in LATAM and, and other places. Um, and, and so I think one of the interesting developments in, in ride hailing, um, you know, the markets where Uber, I think, really struggled were the ones that were most dissimilar to America. Um, so if you look at Southeast Asia, um, you have these super dense uh, cities, but you also have a relatively unbanked uh, population. And so companies like like Grab and Gojek um, saw payments infrastructure as, as interlinked to the problem they were trying to solve around transportation. And part of why these companies have become very successful is they're not just mobility platforms. They're you know, much broader e-commerce platforms. Effectively, they've got delivery services. They also bring services to people. Um, you, know, you can get a masseuse brought to you on, on a Gojek um, in, in Indonesia. Um, and so once you've got this kind of massive density um, and um, kind of unique factors where you don't have the same development stages. You got certain cities and, and, and economies or countries leapfrogging uh, what's what's played out in America and, and therefore transportation becomes linked to things like like payments um, and not just to like I think you kind of have uh, an un, unexpected set of, of, of uh, progressions. Um, and that makes I think for, for really interesting opportunities in the emerging uh, in the emerging markets because mostly people don't have access to credit. Um, and and there's huge congestion and huge challenges, but by solving that, you can solve a whole bundle uh, of different problems at the same time. There are companies also that make more sense in certain economies than others. Um, the ride hail explosion that happened in the U.S. Uh, in some ways can be described as an arbitrage where tons of Americans had cars they weren't using all the time, and they wanted some money, so they would use their cars to depreciate them in exchange for cash, right? But if you're looking at an economy like India or in Southeast Asia where people don't really own that many vehicles, 
um, a lot of the limitations to ride hail, even though everyone wants to use ride hail if you don't have a vehicle, is that there's very few drivers, for example. So um, when you ask about you know, what our theories are on different geographies, you can't just really apply one type of mobility model to every geography. They, they are quite location specific. Yeah, and I think also like in India, for instance, the cost of having somebody drive you is much lower. So you might use, you know, Ola as a default uh, for getting around, whereas in the U.S., you know, minimum wage and, and the cost of labor is much higher. Um, so it, it might only make sense for a certain demographic of people living in a certain kind of area. Um, so you have people for a bunch of reasons kind of leapfrogging car ownership and just using mobility services. Um, and so I think that's kind of an interesting trend. It's a company in Pakistan, Airlift, are you familiar with it? Sort of like a smart bus network. I think it competes with Kareem. Yeah, and in India, I think there's one called Shuttle and there's one in Egypt that's that's come up. Um, I mean, I think this theme around what is public infrastructure and what is privately rolled out is, is really complicated. I think LATAM is one area where it's particularly interesting because governments haven't done that much to build out that infrastructure. If you go to India, you know, the metro has been rolled out into lots of different cities, but that hasn't really happened so much in, in cities like Bogota or Mexico City. I think it's an interesting, actually, opportunity to bring up a tension we see a lot where people are like, oh, you invest in mobility. That means you are anti-transit or anti-public investment in, in transportation infrastructure. And that's not the case at all. I think that when people see a tension between Bird and Lime or Uber and Lyft and public transit, they have to also look at the opportunity for governments to act as orchestrators and to say, okay, if we want obje- we want certain outcomes or objectives, how can we use some publicly owned infrastructure? How can we subsidize some privately owned services to get those objectives? And I think actually, if you look at what some of these companies in Mexico City are doing, there's a real opportunity for the government to say, okay, yes, we do need a better subway system. But between now and 10 years from now, what are we going to do as that system is being developed? Like there's an opportunity for them to work with these private networks and actually provide a lot of relief to the commute congestion that people are facing. Yeah, and I think when you think about what we're doing as a VC and investing in this kind of space, um, it's not exactly tech in the sense that like, you know, I think the kind of idea of tech is like, you know, dot com or, or, or SaaS businesses or something where it's purely digital. Um, and it doesn't really interact that much with the physical world. I mean, I think these kinds of tensions that the Prescott's highlighting around uh, regulators and conversations with them and trying to find a way to partner with them kind of highlights this unique challenge here, which is um, these these vehicles, these scooters that ride around on city streets or, or vans, they're not just in a digital realm. They're actually interacting with the physical world. They're taking up space. They can crash into people and, and even kill them. Um, and so regulation is, is unavoidable and having strategies around regulation is critical uh, to a lot of the companies we back. Um, and so that's, you know, one key lens that we're looking through. So there's, there's obviously a tech component. Yeah, there's, there's you know, scalable uh, digital uh, aspect to this that, that solves a unique uh, kind of problem in each case um, and allows defensibility and something to become extremely valuable, uh, hopefully at the end. Um, but there are also unique challenges not just around regulation, but also that these are heavy assets. They need to be financed oftentimes. Um, and, and Prescott kind of highlighted this in, in the case of, of Uber. You know, there's there's a certain kind of offloading of the assets to the driver partners. Um, it's not super efficient, actually, because they're all paying for their leases as individuals rather than getting economies of scale. You see a similar but different problem for, for scooter companies. They have to, the valuations have shot up in part because they have to own lots of assets, even though those assets depreciate rapidly. So we think a lot about this kind of 
asset piece and debt financing around it um, that I think is a unique challenge in, in our space, but also uh, an important opportunity for us. Do you have a framework for when it makes sense to own the assets versus at least uh, you know, be asset light? It's a question of how the value chain is structured. I'll try to break this down in a way that's not too convoluted. So if you look at the people, that, there's people that make cars, there's people that will probably own cars, there are networks of people that will drive those cars, and there are sources of demand. If you own a car, it wouldn't make too much sense for you to only serve Uber in the US. You'd want to serve Lyft if it was better for you at 5 p.m. than Uber. If you live in an economy where there's only one source of demand, let's take China as an example, where the only person that you'd be driving, the only network you'd be driving for is DD. In that case, it actually might make sense for the asset to only serve DD. And if you actually look at what those kind of monopolistic scenarios look like, if you go to China, um, you actually see DD getting involved in the mass acquisition of vehicles and the creation of these fleets. In fact, they even have a partnership with like tons of automakers like Kia and Volkswagen and others, where the car companies are designing cars for ride hail. They're going to sell them into fleets dedicated to, to work with DD. That wouldn't quite. And that ties sense. into the electric vehicle regulations in in cities in China where there's limits to non-electric vehicles, but a lot more freedom for, for electric vehicles. Uh, so you see those, those incentives kind of tying in. But, but I think, you know, in general, if you want to scale a company really rapidly, I, I think there's been this weird distortion in the market because of, of SoftBank basically adversely selecting companies that are asset heavy. Um, like, you know, if your filter is, is this company uh, in need of $100 million yeah. or more, um, then you're going to, I think, select for companies that are asset heavy. But if you want something that I think um, is is more sustainable or defensible, um, it makes sense to try and offload the or separate out the asset um, and the debt that's associated with it from the network, which is the scalable part, the part that's tech and the parts that that's heavy assets. We ideally try to separate those out. I mean, something I think that's been key to the success of of Revel. Um, and, and, and other companies that, that we're backing. We think about it across the board, how to do it, but it varies from company to company. Um, we've got a company, for instance, in Spain, uh, which does car subscriptions, um, but they have partnerships with leasing banks or with OEMs in order to finance those assets. So it's a different debt provider. It's a different person kind of holding the asset. Lots of ways to structure it, but having a game plan around that's pretty critical. It speaks to an interesting change that's happened over the past years in Silicon Valley where it used to be that being a tech company meant I'm going to make software for somebody to run their business better. And now that there's just more and more and more money coming into the valley, people will ask you, okay, well, if you had 50x the amount of money, why wouldn't you just you know, speed up your time to market by instead of selling the software to other people to run their business better, just buy their business and run it for them? It's almost, you're, you're looking at things that almost look like PE roll-ups where you have a tech startup that has a little bit of IP and, and can manage things ostensibly more effectively going, raising a lot of money and kind of competing directly with who 10 years ago might have been their customers. Now they're just going full stack. And it could produce some pretty interesting go-to-market strategies, but it could also mean that you have lots of companies that are wasting lots of money on assets that it's unclear whether they can really manage them better or not. But but I think also part of the reason we're, we're seeing this is a lot of the low-hanging fruits of kind of SaaS and um, and, and super scalable business models, uh, just purely software, um, have been plucked. And so uh, the companies that have become valuable over the last decade have, f across the board, um, you know, many of them 
have been in in touching on assets to some extent. So obviously the ride hailing companies and scooter companies are, are great examples of that, but also a company like WeWork, um, sorry, not WeWork. <laughs> um, WeWork is, is a much messier example. I meant to say Airbnb. Um, uh, is a company that's you know dealing with with uh, the other expensive asset that most people own, which is a home or an apartment or something like that. WeWork is, I mean, we're literally sitting in a WeWork right now. Um, but I think it's actually, I think what what makes WeWork interesting is it's um, it's kind of at the limit of what uh, this model allows, which is there has to be a component that's defensible and rec- uh, and can and can be scaled super quickly. Um, and it's not; it can't just be an asset leasing business. It can't just be, um, you know, something that that changes slightly on an existing business model that that hasn't been trading at super high multiples. Yeah. Do you have a framework for thinking about when or how to evaluate sort of whether this incumbents will win or, or startups? We we don't have a set rule where like incumbents will win or startups will win. I think it depends on it depends on the type of business. Let's take Right Hill as an example. Yeah. Um, the crazy thing about Uber is that everyone thinks it's a business that's never going to make a profit. I see a clear path towards profitability, and that path is ending its constant price wars in other geographies. And interestingly enough, local players in geographies like perhaps like India or Latin America will succeed because the public market is just not going to sustain Uber's appetite for nonstop price wars. Part of the reason why Uber and and you know Didi and Grab have raised so much money is because we've had a kind of historic period of, of low interest rates. Um, and so the cost of capital is not so high. So the cost of you know pouring subsidies into markets in order to, to get growth um, is also not so high, relatively speaking. That, that doesn't mean this can happen endlessly, but I think now we're seeing a pullback on that and, and some kind of correction. And so these companies are also correcting. Um, and when you have a, a du- duopolistic model as you have in the US, I mean, I, I don't know if you've booked airline tickets recently, but they're usually kind of in lockstep, especially in between U.S. cities. Like all the airlines are somehow pricing things exactly the same. You know, I think Lyft and Uber do pretty much the same thing. And and once they kind of uh, stop subsidizing as much and start and start kind of uh, getting more of a profit, uh, I think they can do that pretty scalably across markets. Like there's a question as to how much consumers are willing to pay for these kinds of services, but I think. In many cases, they're willing to pay enough in order for these companies to become more profitable. So to address the question, I think in the case of like a ride hail scenario, I wouldn't be too surprised to see upstarts in other geographies successfully beating out some of the incumbent ride hail players because of those incumbents inability to suffer losses forever in these far flung geographies. But, but what's interesting about ride hailing that wasn't clear at the outset um, is that uh, the network effects are, are real, right? Like. In a city level, having a certain amount of vehicles is critical in order to have a wait time that's low enough. Like three to four minutes is kind of the magic number. But once you've hit three to four minutes, there's not that much of a competitive advantage to having, you know, two and a half minute or 90 second wait time um, for for an Uber versus a Lyft. Like as long as the price is kind of comparable, you're willing to suck up the extra minute and a half or so. And so it's not these uncapped network effects. They're, They're real, but they're not unlimited. Um, I think we're still kind of figuring out exactly how this plays out in, in the scooter market, but I think the network effects are even weaker. Um, I was actually talking to um, Marcus Villig, who's the CEO of, of, uh, of Taxify, now re- rebranded as Bolt, which is, I think, the sec- second biggest player in, in Europe right now. Um, and with, he's interesting because he started the company at the age of, I think, 19. And he did, from Tallinn, Estonia, and kind of did a spreadsheet analysis and came to this realization that 
you know, as long as you got good enough service, you could be the second biggest player in the market. And if you're going to do that, what you should really optimize is the cost uh, of your of your infrastructure, your engineering, et cetera, in order to build this platform. Um, and so I think they've done really well in kind of uh, capturing market share, even though they came to the market much later, they've been much more capital efficient. So it's not winner take all because people thought at some point these were going to be winner take all market. Yeah, it's winner takes something, right? But it's not winner takes all. I think uh, in some cases, it's it's even less, like with scooters, um, uh, kick scooters at least. On the other hand, there are other markets where I think the incumbents have a distinct advantage. Um, I mentioned before we, we started talking here, if somebody's approaching us with a full stack autonomous play, the bar is very high because it's, you know, short of some sort of complete breakthrough in the fundamental way people are doing training, etc., the cost of developing these types of systems to rival the performance that you're seeing from a Waymo or even you know a distant second like a cruise or something is just so high that even the incumbents can barely afford their their own their own costs. I mean, you're seeing a lot of JVs and mer- like not mergers but partnerships where multiple OEMs ca- each individually agree they can't sustain billions of dollars of investment into this. AV technology, they're going to join forces. So I do think that's an example where, you know, yeah, startups can sell into a particular part of the software stack, um, you know, a particular sensor, a particular type of, you know, uh, software that goes into the development of autonomous vehicles. But for somebody to come in and say, I'm a startup and I'm going to tackle this, reputable VCs and smart founders are still trying to do it. But I'm of the opinion that it's very difficult. Yeah, and I think our strategy in investing in these kinds of companies, we made an investment in, in a company called Cognata, which does simulation for autonomous vehicle development. We made another investment in a company called Phantom Auto, uh, which does teleoperation remote control. Uh, and they just announced a partnership with Postmates doing these sidewalk delivery robots. Um, and and if you're going to... So as you kind of build out more of these kind of vertical stacks of autonomous players... Um, then you can um, start supplying solutions across those players. And as long as it's a solution that it makes sense to be really focused on and can be separated from the core engineering. Um, So actually Phantom's taking an approach of building out an SDK that allows customers to basically um, then integrate it themselves. Um, You can come up with smart strategies for for partnering with these companies. And there are pretty big problems that still need to be solved. Um, But you kind of have to have a, a broad market perspective on this in order to I think separate out you know opportunities that are fool's errand and just going to throw lots of capital at them versus uh, opportunities that I think have some kind of defensibility let's say 10 years from now where you've come back we're doing another uh, podcast um, how do you I'm curious to get just a few minutes of your sort of hot takes of what do you think the bull and bear case for some of these companies and which you think are, are most likely to have like how do you think this is all going to shake out or how could it all shake out Uber's Uber's trying to become more of a platform um, and integrate third-party services. And basically, uh, they just uh, had this partnership with City Scoot in, in Paris with electric mopeds um, and and have a partnership in India on public transit. They're trying to kind of embed themselves uh, and make themselves less replaceable. Um, so I, I, think Uber, I think Uber doesn't go away. Um, and I think, like Prescott said, uh, these companies have a path towards profitability. Lift too. I think I think Lyft even more so has a clear path to profitability in the U.S. Um, it's not fighting uh, a war with Didi in in Latin America, for instance. Um, I think the U.S. market's kind of stabilizing out. I think there was this perception that whoever makes the first autonomous car will put every car maker out of business, every Uber out of business, 
And I don't think that's that's just not true because you're going to have back to the value chain questions, multiple people manufacturing cars, multiple people that have reference designs to make those cars autonomous. But each asset has to serve as many demand sources as it possibly can. So there's still, it's just like the hotel industry. There's still a room for direct bookings if you're going to go to a hotel versus if you have you know, an Expedia or a booking.com. People are going to be there generating consumer demand and fulfilling that demand by going to any number of people that manage fleets of autonomous vehicles. So I, I don't think it makes sense to merge the fleet owner with the demand source. For example, Uber had a whole fleet of autonomous vehicles, but Uber didn't have very much demand at 5 p.m. on a Thursday in, I don't know, some city. Would those vehicles then be able to serve Lyft demand? It makes sense to separate the ownership from the demand source. And I, and I think that Uber and Lyft will continue to look kind of like Expedia, Airbnb players, and there'll be other people that actually buy, maintain, manage, and service the fleets of autonomous vehicles. It'll be a different kind of value chain. So who's going to be the big winner and who's going to be the big loser? If not specific companies, what, what types of archetypes? I think the demand players will always be really large. Probably the people that make the reference designs for how you make an autonomous car. Um, there's definitely a role for large people to act kind of like contract manufacturers. I mean, Foxconn is a huge company and all it does is... Is that what the know, OEMs turn into? I think some OEMs are at risk of turning into this, but a lot of OEMs have a good shot at actually being the real technology vendors. Yeah, going back to kind of the high-level story of OEMs, there's a lot of OEMs considering... I mean, if you think about Boeing and Airbus, they're the main two OEM manufacturers uh, of airplanes. Um, if you look at cars, they're like 14 or 15 companies that are selling more than a million vehicles a year. Um, with the uh, PSA, FCA... Uh, acquisition merger that's that's happening right now you're starting to see some consolidation there's a lot of pressure coming on the market I think you're going to have a lot more consolidation but again tying this into the political aspect if you think about the financial crisis like the US government bailed GM out because there's so many jobs at stake in this industry governments are actively involved in supporting these companies Um, and so there's a lot of complicating factors that aren't just business logic as to you know where the companies fall or not and, and how they weather uh, difficult e- economic times. I think there is a key challenge, though, for the OEMs of, of how they capture more value um, and how they evolve their businesses to become digitized. Um, because for the most part, they're basically uh, assembling different components um, and, and forming them into a vehicle that, that looks really nice. But what digitization does is it doesn't work in such a kind of Lego uh, building block linear kind of way. It makes all these kind of connections that, that are less expected, um, which creates new opportunities. But if your org chart is structured around very um, high volume, reliable manufacturing, then getting your head around that and, and adapting your business process uh, to it is, is quite a challenge. That said, I think what, what the OEMs have done over the last five years that we've been involved in the space, and we work closely with many of them, is um, is is really commit to, to transforming their businesses I think everybody, you know, went to business school and studied Kodak and and examples and ID, IBM companies like that, um, and and learned lessons that at least you should. It's much better to do something than nothing. Uh, it's hard to figure out the exact strategy and what these businesses become. I think it is clear, as as Prescott highlighted, that you're going to need manufacturers. Like that part is, and and they should really make sure that uh, at, at a basic level they they do at least become Foxconn. Foxconn's multi-billion dollar company it's it's well positioned in a certain sense but it has low margins so how do you increase the margins right uh, but they're really low margin businesses yeah and who owns the demand side i think one thing that's interesting is maps um there are not that many maps in the world um there's like tom tom in here 
which is, here is owned by a whole lot of, uh, it's like a consortium of German car makers and suppliers. Um, and then there's uh, a company in, the, in, in San Francisco called Mapbox, which has actually grown really well. Um, and then there is uh, Apple and Google. Um, and, and those are the main maps that you can use. Um, and I maps wonder have, why maps didn't win. What, why instead of going to a, an app called Uber, I don't go to my apps and then order it. More car from there. Well, Google Maps has started doing some of the ag aggregation. You can at least search some information around um, ride hailing and scooters and, and find them on a map. Um, I think Google is trying to shift more to that platform. And you see in China, uh, companies like Autonavi um, becoming, you know, platforms in a much more kind of concrete sense. So I think you're going to see more of a shift toward just like messaging, especially in China. Um, has moved to a platform approach and, and you know, iMessage, which is not great in any respect, um, and, and WhatsApp and, and, and other things are moving, are trying to imitate and learn lessons from that. I think because maps, I, I think this transformation has happened slowly, in part because there's so few players and maps are used for so many different things. But I do think there are extremely powerful effects around maps because you got really strong network effects. You know, all the point of interest, you're going to get more people using the platform. And if we have more information, you can feed that back into the map. With great power, I think also is going to come great scrutiny. In the current environment, the yeah. tolerance, I think, for yeah, I don't know, U.S. authorities to, to be happy about a super app is increasingly questionable, I think. And you look at the ongoing war between you know Priceline, Booking, and, and Google. They're the biggest spender of ads on Google search, and yet Google is trying to you know actually get people to book hotels through Google Maps. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of gunpowder sitting around somebody can drop a match and, and start a, a gigantic war between these companies well and look at look at uber right like literally had a gigantic war with uber because i think travis kalanick realized one day that if waymo was successful in building an autonomous vehicle the demand source is google maps like you open google maps whenever you want to make a trip somewhere because you're looking and if they just offer you a vehicle there who needs uber and hence uber's sort of trying to be a platform Uber definitely wants to be the Expedia, not the United or American Airlines. And, and some of Uber's acquisitions, uh, like Decato, right, is were in order to build up their in in-house mapping capabilities. Just like Apple realized, uh, I don't know, like eight years ago, and struggled initially a lot that they needed maps. It was critical. They were dependent on Google. They couldn't afford to be dependent. It was a key part of their their platform. I think even more so if you're a ride-hailing company, you realize that just depending on Google is, is quite risky. But just as like regulators could prevent a super app from arising, I think they could also prevent Uber from owning all of transport. Like they want to be the, the, trans, the transport graph, for example, right? So in my view of you know, Transit app and many of the other kind of meta search apps, they have a lot to gain from regulators saying, listen, you can be a scooter company in our city, but you have to list your scooters, not just on your app, but you have to list them in Google app Maps. You have to list them in Transit app. And it will actually probably be the role of regulators to ensure that there's an open data standard that allows people to have interoperability. Um, again, transportation, more so than many other digital domains, is an area where governments are really careful about ensuring that citizens don't get screwed because they're so dependent on a particular company. So it's an area we expect to see a lot of activity there. Again, referencing Latin America, you know, a lot of the political instability in Latin America is linked to a slight increase in, in public transportation fares, right? Like, People are very sensitive to the cost of public transit um, and in many different geographies. And, and so there's a lot of, again, it's it's a real world thing. It affects everybody. It doesn't just affect, you know, early adopters um, and there are real consequences to it.
who um who loses here <laughs> from this conversation it could be interpreted that everyone wins but do all the zooks etc is are they in a tough spot or like who do you think gets in a tough spot makers of catholic converters are not in a good position um or other piston heads yeah spark plugs <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I think a lot of suppliers are, are in a tough spot. Like I said, there's this huge shift in value chain in Europe. Um, if you're shifting towards EVs, you're shifting away from internal combustion vehicles. The shift away from diesel has been faster than people expected. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, companies that I think stand to lose a lot. Um, that's just from one, one shift that's happening, which is, you know, in the, in the powertrain. What about Tesla? What about Apple? But it's also not a zero-sum game, right? Yeah. Because... I, I think it's important to remember that when you when you think about congestion, congestion is a consequence of people wanting to make more trips than they can, um, and that actually impairs you know value creation. If you could make more trips in Bogota, it could be a city more like New York in the sense of you know more economic development, more more access to specialists, uh, you know rapid uh, development cycles, um, and so. If you uh, solve some of these problems, you can actually, if you, and I think the metric that's really interesting from a congestion perspective isn't whether or not there is congestion. There's a lot of hand-wringing about whether autonomous vehicles will or will not, in fact, increase congestion. Like, there might be, like, numerically more traffic jams and yet more people getting to where they want to get to. Um, and the getting to where you want to get to may actually be the most important thing because that's a trip that's completed. And, and often that means, you know, a parent being able to send the, the child to a better school or being able to work a better job. Um, and those are actually things that, you know, a lot of people want. Yeah, I think that's the outcome society should want and, and what make uh, cities economic engines. And who wins in micromobility? I think the interesting thing about micromobility is, it, you know, we talked about how the trip economy allows people to experiment and allows consumer adoption curves to be really steep for new vehicle formats. Within vehicle formats, what's cool is to see how fast the iteration has been. It could take generations, like literally 20, 30 years, for cars to have as many improvements and iteration cycles as you've seen in the scooter market in the past two years. And that's partly because of regulation and partly because of complexity. But the scooter companies are kind of vertically integrating the platforms. But but to the Revel point, like a lot of the shift that's happening in the way in which uh, kick scooters are being redesigned is to make them more robust, to add shock absorbers, to add a seat, which increasingly makes it look more and more like a moped. Uh, like a moped, right? Who's going to win in the micro mobility race? I actually think who's going to win are basically livable, walkable downtown sec- you know sections of cities, uh, retail, anyone that is has a business that involves people being out and about in cities. I think they all benefit from people getting out of single occupancy vehicles onto small electric vehicles where they're exposed and they can talk to people around them. They can discover things. Um, I mean, anyone that's ridden a scooter knows it's just way more fun and you're more likely to take a five block trip than if you had to unpark your car, sit in traffic, find parking. There's just going to be more economic activity because people can do more things in cities. And, and again, it's not a zero-sum perspective, right? You could have a whole lot of scooter companies all being successful and having large businesses and the trips they're serving on, you know, some fraction of them might be taken away from cars or, or other forms of transit. But many of them will be new trips that couldn't be, wouldn't have been possible beforehand and therefore businesses also benefit because there's new customers that are coming that wouldn't have come otherwise. And, and don't, I guess mistake our answer to mean that we don't think there's going to be losers like there's probably already today a wasteland of scooter companies that have launched didn't have the right product but i mean it's the creative destructive process of the capitalist system right you see people try to offer a new service and neither consumers want them or not or they have a 
set of economics that work or don't for their service and that's right that's fine. what about horizontal companies like uh simulation companies um i mean we we also have an investment in simulation company and i think um I think with with autonomous vehicles, they're harder than people expected. Um, and so that's good for both of these companies because if it's a harder problem, then you're not going to just be able to hire all the engineers in-house. You might want to work with a company that's specialized in developing a solution. Um, and, and so I think um, the key question is, what are the problems that can be solved by specialized companies? Are they really hard to solve? And is there like meaningful def- defensibility if you succeed in, in solving that? Um, and, and I think that's definitely true in simulation. It's a really complicated and difficult problem. Um, but there's also advantages to you know having more customers. You're able to invest in a better product. Um, there's a certain kind of complexity around the mapping that's required also to build a simulation, um, which I think will, will long-term give these companies defensibility and make them kind of essential suppliers into this value chain. Um, if you think about smartphones, right, when they originally built out, the number of suppliers feeding into that value chain was way fewer than they are today, right? Over time, you've got more and more companies that start offering, and, and it's not just, you know, the component manufacturers that, that are offering services um, or, or, or uh, actual components that go into these uh, phones, but you've got companies like Snapchat that are built on top of that platform. Um, and so I think this is, this is also an interesting theme around um, the shift that's happening around digitization of vehicles is that they're becoming more like software platforms. And on top of that, you can offer certain kinds of services. I think the extent to that uh, is still to be, de- to, to, to be determined. And I think the number of, um, the, the ability of car makers to adapt their platforms in order to be um, more inviting to third-party developers um, has a long way to go. Uh, there's like one app that was built for all the different models of cars, which was Pandora. But they basically had to build a separate uh, solution for each of the infotainment systems for cars. Some brands of some uh, manufacturers of vehicles have multiple different operating systems. If you compare that to smartphones, you've got Android and you've got iOS, and then you basically got most of the world's population able to download and use your app. Um, and the automotive, automotive industry is so far away from that in terms of, you know, software platform scale um, that there's a long way to go. But I, I do think there's an opportunity there. My guests today have been uh, Prescott and Olaf from Neve Mobility. Uh, guys, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.